Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Jeff Elman, co-founder of Urbanbound and Hireology. The companies that Jeff co-founded have assisted over 1,500 professionals find employment, 15,000 residents find housing, 8,000 businesses develop a structured hiring process, and 50,000 people relocate across the globe. Needless to say, he knows a thing or two about building businesses. We have a ton to learn. This is going to be a fun conversation. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. This is this is good because so you have two businesses that you started at the same year, which is if you talk to most people, a big no no. Talk to me <laughs> a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about how do you how do you actually juggle both businesses? Maybe a little bit about like how'd you get started? Why why two businesses the same year? And, and we can kind of launch from there. Yeah, what's amazing is I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who they start a company and they go to solve one core problem, and they realize is they there's so many other problems kind of adjacent to what they're solving for. And they start more and more companies. It spirals out of control. I'm, I'm probably one of those people. They've started five companies, but they're actually all tied together. I would say they, they're tied together to helping people through life's transitions. My first company in 1999 was helping early career hires find jobs. And that led to, okay, they need to find a job, but they also need to find a place to live. Why not start a real estate company as well? So we had a real estate brokerage called HomeScout that helped early career hires were moving, rent a place, buy a place. And then the next question was, what do these people need? Well, they want to meet new people. When they live, there, when they live in a new community, it's like, okay, I got a job, I got my home, now I want to go out. So I started an event planning company. But being those businesses, that was, that was a great learning opportunity early in my career, but it led to the two companies you mentioned that did start right around the same time, which is Hireology and Urbanbound. So I'm happy to dive into any one of those. Yeah. It's been quite the adventure, but those are the two active businesses right now. So, so typically when, you know, when you go through like the, the normal sales cycle or the normal process of building a company, you, you strive to get the product market fit as fast as possible. That's a big transition period. Then you can go to different things. How, how are you able to find product market fit at these two companies? If you're running them at the same time, like walk me through a little bit about like, how is it funded? How is How are they structured with people? That type mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, so in the, in the early days of Hireology and Urbanbound, I was involved. Actually, it was three companies at the same time. It was Home Scout, which we ended up selling to Coal Banker because, to your point, that was very challenging to do, have three companies. So sold that company. The focus on Hireology was only the first five years until we felt like we escaped velocity. And then I'm only on the board of the company. I'm no longer involved in day-to-day. -day. I spent 100% of my time at Urbanbound. So the key here was the same thing at Home Scout was identifying the right person to come in to you know, be the CEO, to run the business. And at Hireology, we, we were lucky enough to meet someone who we felt would be an amazing partner. So Adam joined the organization. He became the CEO from day one. And he's been responsible for you know, a lot of the scale that's happened over the last decade. My other business, Urbanbound, it's my business partner, Michael and I, we spent 100% of our time you know, working on and working in that business. And the reason why I started that company came from, as I mentioned, all these companies are related. When I used to be in recruiting and HR consulting, I saw this extremely dangerous trend that was happening with most of my clients is that they were spending so much time and money and resources recruiting talent, but 
when that talent had to move for the job, typically they just would say, Alex, you know, here's $15,000. Good luck with your move to Austin, Texas. We'll see you and your family then. We hope it goes well. And I started asking more and more companies, why are you just giving people money? There's so much stress and anxiety and all these unknowns about picking up your family, moving to a new location and starting a new job on top of that is even more stressful. Why are you not providing support? And what I learned was that the only support that existed out there was like this white glove, offline, high cost, you know, relocation management companies. And they're kind of like, I would say like the Flintstones of the business world. It's like using a travel agent to book a flight to Vegas. You Today, you probably wouldn't do that. Right. So our goal was to build and automate a relocation platform that made moving a lot easier. And this, you know, this meeting today, this podcast is a lot about scale. I have so many lessons I've learned around product market fit and around when to scale and when not to scale because I've made, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah. That's interesting. So when you were at Hireology and before you, you plugged in Adam, like how, how did you know, was the plan always to start this other business? Like, did you have the idea rolling like, Hey, I wanted to do this other thing because you'd already had previous companies or were you like, I'm going to take this, see where I got it. And then you found something like, how did, how did you kind of navigate that? Yeah. So there's a, there's a story behind it. So with Urban Bound, we wanted to test it. Now, and I wasn't looking to start another company, but I was really surprised that there was no relocation technology. It didn't exist. And I look at the like HR tech solutions out there and you look at the employee lifecycle within, you've got onboarding software and you know, we've got payroll software, we have benefits administration software. There's no software for relocation. So it was a gaping hole in my mind. But I didn't know if it was a business I should start because I knew nothing about relocation. And all my other companies, I would say I was a subject matter expert in. So the way we built the company was we started with an, an MVP and we approached the mayor's office. At the time, it was Mayor Daly. And we said, okay, you've got this organization called World Business Chicago, where your goal is to attract companies to be headquartered in the city. But if the talent's not coming to Chicago, then it doesn't work. So what are you doing to help these large companies attract talent and to fall in love with the community? And they weren't doing anything. They were so focused on the employer side of it. So I said, give me all your materials at the time. This is, you know, CD-ROMs were what they had. So <laughs> give me your CD-ROMs. The mayor, the mayor wrote a letter, you know, welcoming people to the city of Chicago. And I went around to HR leaders within some large companies. I said, what if I helped you attract talent to Chicago? You sell your company but I'll be the one who sells the area they're moving to. And if they accept a job, they're going to get this pamphlet in the mail with the CD-ROM and a letter from the mayor. And it'd be such a wow moment. And by the way, the number one advertiser in that pamphlet was my real estate company. <laughs> so as I mentioned, everything's tied together. So I was capturing right. hundreds of leads, or probably thousands of leads that went over to my real estate company. And then I started thinking more, more and more about this. And the name of the company is called Think Chicago. And... Our clients were starting to say, well, we've got 18 offices. Can you do this in other offices? And I'm like, no, but I, I can probably turn this into software and then yeah. we can scale this. And if I were to do that, would you be a client? And how much would you be willing to pay to have this type of software? Right. And that's how Urban was born. And we were actually able to raise money from one of the top VCs on the East Coast, GrowTech, pretty much at pre-revenue. But we had all of these clients and we already knew they had a problem and they were looking to solve it. So it was a great way to test the business before actually diving in and raising money and spending my time on it. But we could sense that there was a, a major problem in the market and I'm really happy we started the company. It's been a blast. Yeah. 
No, that's interesting. I mean, you, you make a, a huge point there where essentially you tested it before you raise money, which is not as, not as common as it, as it should be today. But one of the big things is you had this, obviously you had this theory or you had these hypotheses and you went out and you tested it. You found a, essentially a channel in the, in the mayor's office to be able to say, hey, let's go do this. And then you went out to all these different companies. Obviously you're, you're here in Chicago. So you're, you're using your network, you're using the community. Did you, were you were you getting customers initially saying, "Hey, will you sign up?" and then to to kind of launch from there, or were you saying, "If I do this, will you sign up?" Like I know that it's like a small difference, but it's it's kind of a big difference, especially raising money, but also like I'm ready to jump in and, with two feet and build this business. Right. Yeah, a lot of it was, "If I do this, will you sign up?" and what do you want? In your mind, what does it look like to have relocation software? Because I knew if I can enroll them in the journey, they would think this is their baby, not mine. Yeah. And they were more likely to commit. So that's what happened. And you know, when we built the software, we talked earlier about like product market fit. Our first version of our software is embarrassing. Like, I, I still can't believe that people bought it. But there was no, there was no other alternative. So at the time, yeah. and we built the software platform that you can come in, you can learn about the you know, community you're moving to and get some discounts on different suppliers. But it wasn't until a few years into the business where we started to realize that we, the problem that we thought we were solving wasn't the real problem. We were just building educational materials to become excited about moving to a new community. But the real problem that our clients wanted us to solve for was to actually administer the benefits on their behalf. So instead of giving someone $20,000 in their first paycheck, make the employee front all their relocation expenses, instead, let us manage all the money. So we... We now built a platform that the employee can log in. They can see they have up to $20,000 to spend, and they can pick and choose all the pre-approved suppliers, their household goods partner, their auto shipper, their short-term housing, connect to a realtor. We're making all the payments so they don't need to front money anymore. And we're taking yeah. all the risk out of moving because we're introducing them to only the best vetted suppliers with service level agreements in place. So, But it took so many years of asking questions and learning what the product, what, what the market wanted to build the right product. And then now our product is. I have you know, 500 reviews on Google with a 4.8 or 4.9 star rating because it's a great product that was based on us asking lots of questions. And that's where all of our ideas came from. I can confidently say to build a great product, most of the time, the entrepreneur is not the one coming up with the ideas. It's the client. Yeah, it's listening. So when you, listening. When you think about kind of that, that, earl, that early couple of years, what 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 were you doing and kind of what did what did sales really look like? I mean, are you out on the streets, door knocking, call, you know, go, just trying to do what you can to try to get sales? Like, and then how did you know that you're like, we got something? Right. So it's, it's really interesting because sales has changed so much in the last decade. At that time, we built an army. You know, we had the BDMs, the business development managers of the BDRs, SDRs, whatever you want to call it. You know, we, we, same, we follow the same playbook that a lot of tech companies follow, which is the predictable revenue, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure you've, you've read that book. I see not in your head. Yeah. And it was, it was a numbers game. You know, sales, I always used to say, is a context score. The more people you touch, the more likely you're going to have success. And we did. But that's not the case anymore. I, I find that it's really challenging. The, the old way of selling doesn't work. Nowadays, to scale a company, I believe you need to have tremendous social proof. You know, the video testimonials, the case studies, the references. And for an early stage company, it's hard to have social proof if you don't have the customers yet, right? So how do you do that? 
So yeah. in, in the early days of Urbanbound and in, in a lot of my companies, I was not afraid to give it away at no cost, kind of quid pro quo. No, I'll give this to you for six months at no cost in exchange for a video testimonial and a case study upon you having success with our software. And by doing that, we did land a lot of the Lighthouse accounts that a lot of people admire and opened up so many doors. So it really wasn't like a loss leader. It was just like a marketing expense. Let's just give, yeah. give it away. And we've seen that. We've seen that work many, many times over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think granted that you can, right? I mean, you, you raised some outside capital, you were able to afford that type of a play, which not obviously everybody gets to, but if you can, it makes sense because you're, you're, you're essentially paying for information. You're paying for action. You're paying to see if they actually do what they say that is so important or so painful to them. When, when you think about sales back then, like, how did you know you started to get some social proof? Was there a number of customers or a dollar amount? Like, how did you know you're like, we got something here? Like, we need to take this yeah. thing and just go across the country. So both Ad Hierology and Urban Bond, I would say, are net revenue retention. You know, being above 100% is, is always a key metric when I know that, okay, we're, we're, they're, they're signing up and they're staying and they're growing. Yeah. That'd be number one. And then number two, when we started getting more and more referrals in certain verticals, that was like, okay, we're, we're on to something. Like, for example, at Hierology, our first few years, we didn't know who our ideal customer was. It was a guess. We didn't, we, what we ended up learning was it was actually automotive dealerships, which I would have never, ever thought would be our ideal customer. Hmm. So now one in five, I think it's now maybe even one in four automotive dealerships in North America is a Hyology customer. And the reason why is because Hyology is a hiring platform and it creates a consistent hiring process for HR leaders and companies to follow. What we found is that if you own an automotive dealership, you typically don't own one rooftop, you own dozens and you have a decentralized hiring process with each individual location. So they, they adopted Hyology quickly and it was one of those industries where everyone knew each other and everyone's like, I'm using Hyology, okay. I'm using them and you, okay, you're not, you need to use them. Yeah. And word spread so fast. And it was a great lesson from the managing uh, director at Bain Capital, Mike Krupko said to us in one of our board meetings, it's like, guys, the, the data is showing us that auto is where it's at for you guys. And always remember this, there's, there's riches and niches. So keep going after this until you penetrated the majority of the auto market. And we did, and that was great advice. And I've taken that same advice to, to Urbanbound, where there's certain niches that we've, we've worked within that have been really fruitful. Yeah. When you were looking at Hierology, I mean, you can, you can look at the market and you can see that there's a lot of different types of hiring systems. And you were able to kind of weave and, and carve out your space. At the same time, you have also brought in Adam to help lead this. Talk to me a little bit about like, how did that actually all come about? Obviously, Urban Bound and Hierology were created in the same year and you kind of said, hey, I'm going to focus on Urban Bound 100%. Walk me through a little bit about how that happened in addition to like actually getting over the hump and saying, Hierology also deserves 100% focus and I'm not it. Right. So... Thankfully, I'm a, I'm a member of entrepreneur organization. So EL, there's EO and there's YPO. And that's how we had the chance to meet Adam. And he had a, he had a recruiting firm 
recruitment process outsourcing company. We had a recruiting firm, so we had a lot in common. Our clients at our recruiting firm were asking us to build interview guides for them. So we used to go into a client and say, okay, we're going to build you an interview guide based on this job function. And you're going to ask these questions and you're going to look for these answers and you're going to score everything. And what happened was our clients started paying us for our interview guides, not even for our candidates. And we realized we we're honest up in here. And that's when we went over and, and talked to Adam. We said, hey, we've, we, we think we can turn this into software. Yeah. You've got a great background. You exited your last company. If you're looking to get into something, would you be interested in being like a third partner in this business? And ultimately, he became the CEO right away. The first year of working together, I would say it's like almost you're planning your divorce before you plan your marriage because it took so long. to. We both knew it was going to be a successful. We all knew it was going to be a successful company, all three of us. So we had to think our wildest dreams. If it got to certain levels, what happens? And I could just draw it all out and best case scenario, worst case scenario. So it took almost 10 months to agree to actually sign the operating agreement between the three of us. So we wow. talked through every possible thing, doomsday scenarios, and then scenarios where the company's worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And yeah. how does it impact us yeah. and our future and our goals? Are we aligned on our values, our, our mission? And we were very aligned across every stage because the last thing I want to do is work with someone who doesn't dream big and, you know, they're happy with a company at a certain stage and, that's not what we were looking for. We were looking for a company that could reach the scale of being worth, you know, 300, 400 million dollars. And we felt like he was the right person to help make that happen. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So when you think about your, so Adam comes in, he's running Hierology, you're running Urban Bound, starting to get some really good traction. What is your first non-sales hire, or excuse me, what is your first sales hire look like that's leading it? whether it's go to market, marketing, sales, like what, what do those hires look like? Where you, I, obviously as co-founder, you're always selling because that's just part of the gig. But what is your first like direct type person look like? I can tell you what it doesn't look like and I can tell you what it does look like. So what I have found in an early stage company called, you know, seed level or series A is it's very easy to be attracted to a sales leader from a large fortune 500 company. But what I found is that doesn't work uh, because that sales leader came from a background where they didn't have to be as scrappy. He or she had all the resources around them to help ensure their success. And when you're working for an early stage company, you're leading sales. It's, it's you. You need, to, you need to be in the trenches leading. You can't just point fingers and tell people what needs to be done. So I've made the mistake early on of hiring, I'd say, more seasoned individuals who had never scaled sales teams at a small growing company. So going back in time, I would be looking for people who had helped the company go from a few million to scaling to 10 million or 15 million, whatever it might be, versus someone who's coming from a multi-billion dollar organization. Culturally, that's just such a mismatch most of the time. And then frankly, a lot of those people who try that job, they end up going right back and working for a Fortune 500 company. And I, I don't see it work out as much as is you would think it would. Yeah. I want to get a little bit tactical here. When you're, when you're looking for this hire and you're looking for this scrappiness, what types of questions do you ask and what types of answers are you looking for? I'll use the mm -hmm. hiring guide to dig in mm -hmm. this because yeah. one of the things, and, and this is what I do a lot in my own business is help coach people how to actually hire sales people, sales leaders, any startup people even. 
one of the things is it's one thing to ask the question. It's another thing to actually know what is a good answer and what is a BS answer. And salespeople should be able to sell themselves more than anything else. Do you have any tips as far as like, how do you sort through the BS and are like, these people are just a fantastic hire? Yeah. There's something I've done a lot in my, so I mentioned earlier in my, when I was in my early twenties, I had a recruiting company and it was hard to recruit because no one had a track record, right? It's your first job out of college. You can't look and say, I hit 110% of quota the last three years. That, that's impressive, but you can't do that. So what I, what I learned to do, and I still do this for, even if I'm hiring a chief revenue officer, or any position is there's usually pattern recognition. So I'm, I'm looking right now and the NFL draft is coming up soon. And, and Marvin Harrison Jr. is projected to be top three or top four pick. And his dad was a Hall of Famer. I mean, there's a, there's a pedigree there. So okay. I, I love seeing any type of patterns in people's lives. So, for example, what I'll do is I'll, when I interview someone, I'll start at high school. And sometimes this will get people freaked out who are in their like 40s or 50s. Like, wait, I'm, you're going to talk to me about high school right now? But what I'm looking for is what was your high point in high school? What was your low point? Did you have any leadership opportunities? Did you were you active in anything outside of the classroom? Same thing with, with college. What was your high point? What was your low point? Did you win any awards? Were you nominated for anything? Any leadership positions? And you go through the first job, second job. But what you, what I find is that the best employees, they were always leaders. They they and when they look at their experiences in high school and college, they talk about them in a really positive way. Even when I ask about what their low point is. They'll say, this is my low point. This happened, but here's what I learned from it. So what I look for is that internal locus of control. Is like, do they are they thumbs in and they can only resolve the things and they have a positive outlook on the world? Or are they thumbs out? You know, my job was not good because my manager was horrible. That's like the biggest red flag, right? So it's amazing how oftentimes people will be thumbs out. So we've had a lot of success with hiring great people. That's one of the things when we were raising capital at all my companies, I always, I'd always tell my investors like, the best talent typically wins. Alabama wins every year in football or Michigan, whatever. They have five-star athletes, four-star athletes. I'm going to build the best team. That's my background. I'm an HR guy. I'm going to, I can sell, I can build teams. We're going to win. And I pride myself on the fact that we are very tough to work for. Our interview process is not an easy one to get through, but those that make it through the process. And once they're working at one of my companies and they look around the room, it's usually only surrounded by A players. Like there's not too many B players or C players. I mean, yeah, we have mishires over the years, sure. but we've learned how to evaluate talent, which is a really important skill to have. That's impressive. So when you when you think about, so there's there's sellers, there's sales leaders, there's marketing, and, and let's kind of focus on the go-to-market side. I mean, you talked about your background where it's a little bit of HR, you, you, you've built multiple businesses, you obviously have all kinds of successes and, and failures that you've learned from. How do you, how have you learned to hire for roles that you don't have any experience in? that you know are crucial for building the business? Yeah, so advisors, early days of UrbanBound, I had no idea how to hire an engineer or a CTO. Like I would interview an engineer and if I liked his or her personality, it's great, but could they code? I have no idea. So what we did was, I always tell entrepreneurs, go have an advisory board, go find mentors early on, and make sure that they're not all the same. Like good basketball team has a center, a point guard, a forward. You don't want the same type of advisors. So go get advisors. And then if you have one who knows engineering hiring or is very technical, you need to 
bring your advisor into the hiring process. So we used a gentleman by the name of Kevin Taylor, who was a great advisor in the early days because he sold his tech company to Groupon and had some time. So he advised us and he helped us hire our, few, our first few technical hires. I could not have done that otherwise. So was, I kind of, I would say I, I outsourced some of that, but I'm yeah. still interviewing for the cultural things and I'll, I'll make sure they align with our core values. But the tactical things, I, I, I would rely on other people. That makes a lot of sense. When you, so let's, let's, let's continue along this journey. We found product market fit. We're making some initial hires. Let's, let's talk about urban bound. What, what does, once you figure out that urban bound is like, this is it, like we're going all in, there's something definitely here. You're starting to make some hires. What does that initial team look like? And, and then, and then what's the, how does the strategy shift when that new team or I guess current teams in place? Yeah. When you talk about team, are you talking about specific within the sales org or customer success? Or what, anything what team kind of go to market. It could be customer success. It could be sales, marketing, yeah. anything from like the, you know, the, the revenue side of the house. Yeah. So like at Urbanbound, one of my board members said this to Michael and I, this is a few years ago. He said, you guys are heat seeking missiles. When, when COVID happened, you know, I own a relocation technology company. No one was moving. And all my clients were calling me and saying, we love you guys, but we have to cancel our contract because we're going remote. So it was a very scary and dark time for me as an entrepreneur with this business and all these investors behind us. And we actually grew that year, which our, the managing director of Protect, he said, of all our portfolio companies, we circled you guys as the one who were going to be the losers right away during COVID. And you guys found a way to grow. How, how did you grow? And it goes back to the ideal customer profile. We had a shift as a business. Our clients were Indeed and Zillow and IBM and Peloton and all these organizations that were remote. And we started looking at healthcare and realizing that there's a tremendous labor shortage in healthcare. There's all struggling to find physicians and nurses and advanced practitioners. And to perform the job of a physician, you have to physically go into Cleveland Clinic to perform. Yeah. So we started building our software with the end customer in mind, in this case, large healthcare systems. And then we won, strategy was to win the Lighthouse accounts, to win the ones that everybody looks up to. Everybody wants to be Duke Health, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, St. Jude. All of those are Irmont customers and all of them have made video testimonials and been part of case studies. And they have helped us spread the word. So the moment I knew we had something was the moment I knew they were on board and they were happy and they were becoming raving fans because they were willing to actually put their reputation out there and, and do these testimonials. And that that's a really exciting time as an entrepreneur. What what did the team look like? I mean, did you shrink as many companies did? Did you did you shrink during the early days of COVID or keep the same team, change out people just because of the the shift in in the overall model? So during COVID, we did not shrink. That was a promise that Michael and I made to our company in the very first or very first month of COVID, that our number one goal is to make sure you guys are all safe. Number one, with your families and your friends. Number two is that you have a job. So whatever we need to do, we're going to make sure you're all here. Um, and I'm really proud that we made it through that period because to lose a lot of our revenue and still keep our employees, we had to do a lot of really creative things, but it, it all worked out in the end. Um, the, the team is, you know, we've got 
we're, we're missing some people around. We've got four account executives and, you know, we have a, a sales leader, customer success leader, and then, you know, four person customer success team as well. But there's a missing piece right now in a force of a marketing team, but we don't have a channel partnership person. I believe channels are really important, especially in today's selling environment. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in that seat right now and forming some partnerships, which is opening up some low hanging fruit opportunities. But that's something that we'll have to hire for us if we want to keep scaling it more aggressively. Yep. When, when you started getting into these medical healthcare type companies, you hadn't been in healthcare before. How'd you break yeah. through? How'd you figure out how to open the door? I mean, these are behemoth like sales cycles, a million decision makers, and to, to kind of, I don't want to say pivot on a dime, but to, to essentially change your, your ideal customer profile and go through that motion. How, how did you do that? So I, I started subscribing to every possible industry newsletter, started going to as many conferences as I can. You know, I had to understand the right words to use in a meeting. You know, that I wouldn't say your employees, I would say your physicians, like little, little things that to show it that we know, we know the space. And then once we started having customers, I would tell them like, we're, we're newer to healthcare. Our product is built for healthcare based on the feedback we're hearing. But I want to learn from you as much as I can, because I need to understand all of your pain points to keep building world-class software for you. Yeah. So what I started doing was like founders calls and it was like a listening tour. And my clients knew at least once or twice a year, I'd have a founders call with them. And I would ask them, you know, knowing what you know about Urban and you know about me, what would you be doing? Where would you spend your time? What conferences should I go to? Who should I be talking to? And I learned so much in a very short window that allowed me to be much more effective, you know, as, as a business owner and as someone who's also an individual contributor trying to help my team hit their numbers. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say enough. I mean, I, one of the things that I see founders oftentimes do is as soon as they hire for sales, sales leader, they're out. Finally, I don't have to do this anymore. And you, you took the opposite approach and you're staying in, in a variety of different ways. And obviously you're stepping up for an individual contributor role on the channel. And what, where, where does that come from? Is that, is that just, you're always been on that side of the house and you feel really comfortable with it. You know, it's essential to the business itself. I mean, it's a great way to keep your pulse on, on what's happening in your own business, obviously, but like, where, where does that come from? Yeah. Well, number one, the hardest door to open in sales is the car door, uh, getting the meeting and getting you know, So yeah. how do you, how do we get out there? And I'm, I'm, I'm so competitive. Like I, 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 I know that we need at bats. If you don't have at bats, you, you have no chance at any home runs. So to me, sales is a, it's, it's a game. And I, I love having goals that we have to hit and being one responsible for hitting those goals. So I, I want to be deeply involved in sales. There is this good debate, you know, at a, at a company, there might be some salespeople say, wait a minute, I don't want the founder joining me because then we look small. And others will say, I want the founder joining me in the sales process because it shows that me as the account executive, I've got some clout within the organization. I'm able to show that you guys are important to us and I'm going to bring in the co-founder. So there's different schools of thought. I'm of the school of, there's 417 healthcare systems in the United States. That's not too many at-bats. I want to know that we maximize every at-bat possible. So I've asked my team that I want to support and do team selling and join every single meeting. It doesn't mean I'm running the meeting. We all have our roles. They'll, maybe they'll run the demo and I'll run the, the slide deck and talk a little bit about some stories of other healthcare systems that we've helped just like them. Yeah. But team selling has been really effective. 
it also ramps people up a lot faster. I yeah. found. Talk to me a little bit more about team selling. Like how, how does exactly does that work? I mean, are there, is, you know, people have different, different roles as far as like who talks about what questions do we talk to different personas? Like when you say team selling, g- give me some more information. Exactly. Yeah. How, how do you pull that off? Yeah. So for example, if we were selling together, Alex, and you were an account executive, I'd say, okay, Alex, you own the meeting. So you own to make sure that we start on time. You own all the discovery questions at the beginning. You own the closing questions. You own that we respect their time, that we end on time. And I own, you know, in this example, I own the demo. So you need to give me 25 minutes to run the demo in this hour-long meeting, but you own the rest of it. Yeah. I'll be there to support you with, if you don't have an answer to a question, or maybe I have a, button, a question I want to dig deeper into and create, go down the pain chain a little bit more. But because you own the meeting, you also read the room. You know, you can tell when I'm doing the demo, you can tell me if someone's not interested or, or Jeff, can you go back there? It looks like there's some interest in learning more about X, Y, and Z. So that, that's, that's the role is you own the meeting, I own the demo or vice versa. And then, you know, if we have a big in-person pitch, everyone has to have some role in that. So you don't have to show up and go out to Dallas to stand in the boardroom. Yeah. You're going to have some role where you're going to be the subject matter expert on these questions tied to these areas of the business. We all know you're going to be the one answering them. And then yeah. there should be no question that surprises you. Like if you're a good sales organization, you've documented all the objections and you've got your rebuttals. You've documented all the questions that are coming your way. And, and you also probably have the stories you need to tell in the bag of tricks to help get people to agree with a yeah. certain positioning statement. Yeah. Well, that's a, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that's one of the things that I get asked about quite often is around, around that transition. I mean, you, you use the famous word document document the questions, document the answers, document all the different pieces. You've built enough businesses, so you've had multiple at-bats of doing this. What exactly does that look like in your mind? Is that the founder sitting down and just writing out a Google Doc of what you say and who you say it to and what you can expect them to say? Is it, this is why I picked this company to sell to? Like When you think of documenting, because so much of this Mm -hmm. transition, right? You're hiring people to do a job, set them up for success. A lot of that has to do with supportive documentation to kind of fast start, fast ramp, that type of thing. How do you think about that? How how do you how do you talk to your team about helping any people that they hire as well go faster? Yeah, I think people learn in, in many different ways. You know, the documentation within a Google Doc, nice. So people, some people prefer that. I prefer to record every meeting we have, so we use Gong. And then in Slack, we have a gong channel where for the week we'll post, you know, you know, minute 19 to minute 22 is where we talk about our pricing philosophy and you can hear the questions they ask. So we're sure little tidbits of, of each meeting with internally across all of urban bound. And what we find is that that's a great way for people to learn and ask more questions. So we, we do gong recordings. And then we, of course, we document things. We have internal wiki where we document things as well. Like most businesses, we've got the Google Docs and we've got the Excel spreadsheet where you can, the sales library, we can click on the case studies or one pages, whatever it might be, but it's, it's all organized. It's, it's, for me, it's appears organized. Maybe for someone who's new to the organization, it takes a lot to learn at first, but there yeah. is a, there's a system of record in place. We go, we use salesforce.com, of course, yeah. for all documentation. Do you have someone who owns that? Like who owns we getting do. all this in there or is it everybody? 
We do. So um, we have a RevOps individual who owns a lot of that. You know, ultimately, the account executives and the customer success team members own when they have a client-facing meeting. The notes have to be in Salesforce, and the tasks have to be created. And you know, I always say, what gets measured gets done. And if you don't put your notes in within 24 hours, you'll probably hear from me. Now, I've been told actually recently that I need to stop doing that because it drives people crazy. <laughs> but at least they know I'm looking at their work. Yeah. Uh, but that's how I learn. I'm just going in there because I want to. I want to read about the meeting, and I'm looking for my my knowledge share where I can read and I can share with others. Oh, so and so has had a meeting last week with this organization. Here's what their objections were. Let's talk about this and yeah. try to quarterback a lot of things by just getting access to information and reading notes and watching Gong videos. I learned so much that way. Talk to me a little bit about one of the things that's really interesting about scaling a company. Um, I, I'm a big believer in your scaling revenue. You're not scaling a team. You just grow a team to be able to hopefully support the scaling of revenue. How, how do you balance like micromanagement versus like independent decision making? Obviously, you have your Salesforce, you're looking at metrics, you're, there's visibility just naturally inside of that. But like, looking at somebody's work all the time, they could absolutely be like, hey, man, like back off, like, let me just do what I need to do. But then there's yeah. also the like, vice versa, that it's, I don't receive enough coaching, I don't get skill development, like nobody cares. Like there's a, I feel like there's a fine line. How, how have you been able to kind of manage that within your own company? If if I if I have to micromanage somebody, then they shouldn't be on the team. That, that's number one. And, and I, I don't find myself ever having to do that unless someone is approaching, maybe being on a performance improvement plan. And now I need to go back and see what, the things that they're doing that's causing them to not be successful that can maybe help them so they can get off that plan. But I, I think that's the fastest way to lose people. I mean, when we hire people, we, we're hiring them because we trust them. They're, they're adults. We expect them to be able to get the work done. I always tell people, I don't care about how many hours you work. I just care about the end result. You know, if you, if you're a mother and you've got two kids and you drive the carpool and leave for an hour and come back or your father and you leave and pick up your kids, yeah. fine. Great. I'm, I, I, whatever you need to do, as long as it, at the end of the quarter, the, the goal that we put in front of you, you hit that goal. I don't care how you get there as long as you get there. So it wouldn't make sense for me to come in and, and start micromanaging because I'm only looking at the end results. And if they hit those, I don't, yeah. I don't care. So when you think about development, I mean, you, you, you have a, a hiring, structured hiring process business. You know this like side of things inside and out. You've built multiple businesses. You know what good essentially looks like. How do you, how have you figured out how to have people do more? How have you figured mm -hmm. out how to get people to care more, push more? see more in themselves that they ever thought possible. I mean, that's just, yeah. that is just a skill in and of itself. And, and you have that, that talent, like, how do you, how do you know that? How did you figure that yeah. out? So it's like, it goes back to the why, you know, why do we do what we do as individuals? It's really interesting when you learn that someone's asking for a raise because they did a great job and they deserve that raise. But what do they, what do they want the raise for? Are they, they is it a down payment for a home? Are they paying for their kids' school? I like to know what makes people tick, and that, that's how I can motivate them. Like, hey, I know you really want to buy that at home. If we can do these things, I think we can make this happen by the end of this year. And I kind of like team up on on what they want to celebrate as their accomplishments with the money that they're earning. So th that's 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 one thing. I think that's a that's a really important thing. I also 
ask a ton of questions. So there's the book Multipliers, where there's an example of like you're sitting across from an employee and they bring a, they bring a problem to you, which is basically they've lifted the table up and the marble rolls your way. And your job as a great leader is to actually lift the table back up and roll the mar marble back at them and ask them, you know, what do you think? Don't, you know, I know you think I have the answers because I'm the owner of the company, but there's no blueprint for how to build Earthbound. No one's ever done this before. Right. I want to pick your brain and I want to see how you would go about actually attacking this challenge. And I do that a lot. Almost, I had a call there with my, my head of sales and she goes, you know, you ask so many questions, Jeff. And, and then you give your opinion at the end. But the problem a lot of times founders have is once you give your opinion, people take your opinion as like, Jeff said this, so I'm going to go do this. Right. And I don't mean it like that. So I, I've, I've learned over the years, I have to say, I just want to pick your brain. I want to collaborate. What I'm going to share is my opinion is not something I think we should do right now. But let's just talk about it because maybe something else comes out of this conversation. And, and then I find my employees love that. Yeah. Or a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll slack and someone say, I've heard you're doing great work. You're an engineer. You're on the engineering side. I'm on the side of the business. Can we have lunch? I know you work in Kansas and I'm in Chicago, but can we have a Zoom lunch uh, next Friday? I saw your calendar's free. And I just want to get to know you. And I go to these lunches. And I very rarely do I talk about Urban, but I really want to get to know my employees, my coworkers. And I feel like that's gone a really long way. Our retention has been really high for lots of reasons, but I do think it's because we, we really want to get to know our, our coworkers. That's awesome. What, what makes them tick? What are they motivated by? Yeah. When you think about, let's go back a little bit to the story and, and the growth story. So found product market fit, hiring people, plugging them into the right roles. How has your strategy and, and how you do things around that time shifted to how you kind of do things today? Because growth has changed, scale has changed. Obviously, the markets and the economy have changed a lot. The overall, just like how things are done. How have you had to be able to adapt? Obviously, changing to to healthcare was it was a huge focus. What, what kind of changes? What kind of bets have you had to make in order that to make the shifts, both both good and bad ones that you've made? I'm trying to think of examples. I can't really think of a good example of like how we had to shift. I mean, from our, our, our strategy, I mean, we've, we've tried, you know, account-based marketing. We've, we've, we've learned how to, how to be great at trade shows. We've learned how to leverage data and create ROI calculators. So you're talking about a hard dollar savings in a meeting versus the, the nice to haves. So we, we've shifted some, like a lot of tactical things along the way, you know, creating advisory councils and, you know, I love businesses that can put a guarantee behind something or, or have a risk-free pilot, you know, try us for X number of moves or X number of days. So I'm trying to always find ways to de-risk the buying decision during the buyer's journey where it's like, you know what, let's just, let's just try our bond. Everyone's using them. By the way, I'm not going to get fired for using our bond because there's dozens of healthcare systems already working with them, many of the best ones. So I might as well try it. So we're kind of at that point now where our, our theme for this year is the tipping point because Malcolm Gladwell's book is, I think it describes a great company. Once you, you, when you know you're reaching that tipping point, it's the most exciting time. Yeah. And we're kind of at that right now. So our, a lot of things that we've worked from a strategic perspective in healthcare, it's really starting to pay off. But a lot of things I just mentioned are all things that we've done. Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's interesting that you say it because, you know, I, I don't think enough founders, enough executives are talking about the buyer's journey, the buyer's process. And you've been doing this company for what, 13, 14 years now at this point. And you're still talking about the buyer's journey and understanding how to de-risk and looking at it from their perspective. That gives so many different advantages to you to say, just get them to try it, right? To your point, you have yeah. the social proof, you have the testimonies, you have the videos, you have everything that says, as soon as you try it, everybody else is going to sell you on it. The product will sell you, the others will sell you. All your job is, to your point, is, is open the car door. And as soon as you can yeah. do that, you got. Yeah, there's, this, there's this book, Creating Competitive Advantage by Janie Smith. Have you I haven't heard, that, heard that book before? No. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's such a powerful book, but it's, it's about how to make strong claims you know, about your business. So for example, we at Urban, we say we're the number one healthcare rated relocation company. We've never lost a healthcare client in the history of Urban. But like a few strong claims that gets people to say, wow, okay, that's that's interesting. You know, in the book, it talks about Big Bertha drivers for golf. You know, Big Bertha hits the ball an extra 10 yards. And you go, really? But that was their claim. And people went out and bought Big Bertha drivers. But in each business, what are the things that you can say that make you so unique? But what are the bold things that if you had 20 seconds, you're standing in the middle of the football field in the 50-yard line in Ann Arbor at the big house, and you have 105,000 people listening to you, you got 10 seconds. What would you say about your business, right? Something that's memorable. And that's just a really, really important thing, I think, to always remember. That's really interesting. You've been doing this business for many years now. How long did it take you to be able to figure out what that speech or pitch or whatever you want to call it is? Yeah, I think I'm always adjusting it. Yeah. So it's because evolved record, over the year. It's, yeah, it's evolved. Because it could be the difference of one word that changes the reaction of somebody. It, yeah. It's as simple as one word. So... I think the beautiful thing about Gong is you can look at people's reactions to certain things that you say. You know when they're leaning in, you know when they're checking out. So I, I do look at that often and you can search in Gong by keywords that were said. You can just go to that one part of a meeting and say, how was our positioning statement on X, Y, and Z? How was our pricing philosophy? What did, how do they react to that? Like little pieces, then you just keep evolving over time. You know, we're in a new year right now, it's early 2024. and First thing we talked about was let's let's redo our our sales deck. Let's create all new slides. Let's refresh this thing because even though it's been working, it doesn't mean it's the, maybe there's things we can do to enhance it, and make it better in 2024. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. When when you look at some of the bets you've made that have haven't worked out, let's talk a little bit about some of the the learnings from some of the mistakes that you've made and what maybe what you would do differently. Oh yeah. So we don't have to dig through the entire graveyard. Let's just pick a couple. Yeah. <laughs> so our business model for urban bound in the early days was, was this a flawed business model? I mentioned earlier that we learned that just giving people content to learn about the city and everything to help sell the area that we thought we could be a very large scalable company by doing so. And we won all these accounts, this is 10 years ago. This is when Salesforce was not what Salesforce is today and Yelp yeah. and Groupon and so many, so many large companies, Capital One and LinkedIn. I mean, they're all, they're all around customers in our V1 of our product. And we just missed the mark. 
you know, there are, we did not have product market fit. We raised our series A and the first thing the VCs will tell any entrepreneurs, go deploy the capital as fast as you can. So we went and we hired a sales army and created a sales machine. We had so many meetings and we won so many customers, but we had the wrong product. <laughs> so we were just, my biggest mistake is that we scaled that sales machine too fast that so we burned capital early on. Going back in time, I would have said to my board, okay, we had some churn of some customers. We don't know if we've got product market fit yet. Can we reserve the capital until we actually investigate this more? And, but that, the answer would have been no. This is like, you, know, you need, they don't give you money to sit on it. And that was one of the things I learned about raising money is that I, I didn't realize how fast you have to deploy capital. So I have not raised the big mega rounds intentionally because I don't want to go raise $50 million and have to deploy $50 million. I want to go raise $5 million and $10 million, like smaller rounds and, and deploy it and reach scale and keep building the product. Yeah. So that, that was a good lesson for me. So now our product is something I'm so proud of. I go to bed at night knowing if people use their bond, they're going to have a great experience. I used to go to bed at night calling and bitching to my business partner. I just went on the road. I was in San Francisco. We won these five customers and, and we blew it. And I'm, I'm mad, you know, and I'm, because he was on the product side. We used to have these, and it was a, it was a healthy conversation. It was a good debate. And oh. now it's the complete opposite. So, hey, we've got this great product. Okay, Jeff, go go out there and get the team to sell this thing and get more people educated about it. Yeah. When you when you were building your army and you were talking about, I mean, you got some pretty big name. I mean, you mentioned some pretty big name companies right there. And you're selling them essentially the wrong product. Is it, it's not as ever as simple as I make it sound, but is it as simple as like, hey, you had churn or they said no. And you're like, we don't, The pro, it's the product. It's not a market thing. It's not a people thing. It's a product thing. Like, how did you figure that out? Because I think to a different founder in maybe the exact same situation, they would say, we need, we have the wrong sellers. Like our sellers are terrible. We need to get different people. It's their, they don't know what they're doing. Or- right. You know, there could be something else. How did you figure out that it, it was the wrong product? So we have data on, on, on everything. So number one, we got feedback from the employees using the software. And we got feedback from the employers. So our net promoter score, for example. And then we did the founders calls and we listened. And But when we were starting to get negative feedback, it was consistent to certain things that were wrong with the product. There were the... BFO is the blinding flash of obvious, like, holy shit, <laughs> this isn't going to work. We're going to keep signing up more customers and we have a leaky bucket. We have a leaky bucket here. We need to fix the bucket. So by looking at the data, the data took the emotions out of it. Yeah. And when your net revenue retention is dipping well below 100%, there's a, there's a problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about as, as far as... You're, you're digging into all of this information. You talk a lot about data. You, you talk a lot about looking at those types of things. What, what does it look like in those initial hires? Are you, is, is RevOps, is that the hire? Is it a VP of finance? I mean, is it, is it you? Is it your partner? Like, how do you have all of this data to make decisions on? Because it sounds like you've prioritized it quite a bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, every, everything that we do at all, all of our companies are data-driven. I mean, and they're, and it sets, it sets, if you measure things, it sets expectations for people coming in the door. I'll just give you an example. If you were an SDR at Urbanbound, there was a dashboard that was hung up in the office on the wall where everyone could see 
how many touches they had for the week, how many qualified opportunities did they create, how many meetings were run, how many deals were closed. And there was a, there was a lot of gamification. There was always prizes. We, we made it so fun. And it was, it was fun. It was like a high energy sales environment. But when you came in the interview, we would show you that here's our expectations. Like you're going to be either green or super green. If you're yellow for multiple weeks, we're going to have to have a, put you on a pip. Uh, a, lot, a lot of the things were effort related at that point. Sales was, but it, that wouldn't work anymore. But that, that's how we used to do it. And across every position, there should be a scorecard that lets yeah. someone know at the end of the day, are they, are they successful? Or are they not successful? So we have, we have scorecards and we have OKRs and all the things you probably expect a company that has scaled to have in place. Yep. OKRs being objectives and key results. Yep. If you think about the way that you run businesses, and it, I'm assuming at some point you'll start another business. <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, are there key hires outside of just you know easy, straightforward sellers? But are there other key hires that are like, I will never do a business without these types of hires? Well, number one, I, there has to be a co-founder. I like if I were to invest in a company, I would not invest in a company unless there was a co-founder. I just think that the, aside from the work that has to be done, the emotional toll of not having someone to talk to and run ideas and bounce ideas off of, my co-founder has been like, we've worked together for 25 years and had five companies together. He's, he like completes me and I complete him. We complement one another. But having someone who's very technical, if it's a software company, having a technical co-founder or a chief technology officer who you've identified early on, who has a nice equity stake in the business, that's a, that's a critical hire. I don't know how someone can scale a tech company. I've heard some of your guests on, on your podcast in the past, and I think I remember her name was Coco. Yeah, recently. Coco she, yeah. yeah, Yeah, and she said she was like not a technical founder. Yeah. She had to go find people. And like that, that's... It was like, oh yeah, that's, she probably had some rough days early on, but she went at it by herself and she didn't have a technical co-founder. So she had to go find people. And probably what most people do is they outsource to companies, their tech, and it, it's like a house of cards. It looks good at first and then all of a sudden it collapses and they, they realize it was a mistake. So getting that right technical hire in early is, is critical. Yeah, I could see that. That is huge. When you think about scaling, and you've scaled urban bound specifically, maybe about them. What, what's one of the biggest missteps that you've had with scaling the actual go-to-market team? Or what was the most challenging part of, of scaling beyond kind of the, the current founder-led sales? Yeah. I'll use Hireology as an example because we had a lot of rapid growth. We went from having you know 20 or 30 employees to having over 200 employees in a very short period of time. And it's, it's maintaining the culture is, is the hardest part. Yeah. especially in a remote world. I always think like a great culture is something that's caught. It's not taught, but how do you catch a culture when you're all on zoom? You know, you're not really in person. So, you know, at both my companies, we get together four times a year. We've got quarterly on sites where everyone gets together and we talk about our goals for the quarter. And we talk about reasons why we hit or didn't hit goals and create the objectives and key results. That's just a really, really important thing to, to do. Yeah. No, I think especially getting just getting together, I think is one of the most underrated things that yes. I think companies do, especially today where everybody's like, I want to be virtual or I want to be remote. But I mean, I, I enjoy it too. I enjoy not having to commute, but there's just nothing that replaces in person. It doesn't have to be every day, but when you're, when you, it solves a lot of problems when it really, all does. Together. it really does. Yeah. 
Jeff, this is awesome. I feel like I could ask a million more questions and we could talk about this for the next couple of hours. <laughs> I want to, I want to wrap things up. When, when you, when you think about giving advice to founders, go to market leaders, do you have a, a favorite book or a favorite resource that you typically recommend? You've, you've mentioned a couple here today, but is there any one that like absolutely sticks out? Yeah. So I'm going to go, I'm probably going to go with the book by Gina Wickman. That's called Traction. It's the, it's entrepreneurial operating system. So it's, it's Traction EOS, entrepreneurial operating system. Yeah. But it's really, really actionable, and it lays out the blueprint for what I followed to build multiple companies. I, in my early days, I used to write these very long business plans, and I spent a month writing them, and then they would go in my drawer, and I never saw them again. And it's a, it was such a waste. So this book, and now I have like one or two page plans for my entire company. When we were raising money, no one ever asked to see a business plan. Not, I didn't have one VC, and I did this whole Sand Hill Road tour and all around the country. No one has to see business plans. So this book was all around like the little things you need to do to build and scale companies. So I, I love that book. That's awesome. I'll have, to, I'll have to check that out. I haven't heard of that one yet. How does the audience get more of you? I know you got a podcast. Tell us about the podcast and, and how does the audience get more of you as well? Sure. Yeah. So we do have a podcast. It's, uh, it's called You Be On The Move. And it's really tied to HR leaders and re the relocation of their employees and attracting and onboarding and retaining talent. Uh, so that's something people can always tune into. You can always find me on, on LinkedIn. And also, of course, on, is it, do you even go by Twitter anymore? Is it just X? Was it just X? I still say Twitter, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm yeah. Really a Twitter guy forever. Yeah. yeah. It's, always it's still Twitter. like Sears Tower in Chicago. It's yeah, not Willis exactly. Tower. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm on, I'm, of course, I'm on Twitter, but I think, I think LinkedIn is always the best way. Okay. And we'll, we'll link that all in the show notes. Last remaining wisdom, any, any pieces of any nuggets that, uh, that you can part ways with at the end? No, I, I think the last thing I would say is there's a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs, who want to start companies. And the reason why they don't is they say that it's just too risky for me. And I always say the biggest risk is actually not doing it because life is so short. When we look back at our lives, we should never have these regrets. And there's so many people out there who probably have what it takes to build and scale successful companies, but that risk, that story they have in their head, they can't get rid of it. And my, my advice to them is this, just do it, try it. And if you don't, if you don't succeed, it's, it's like getting an MBA, a few years of amazing learning that you would have. Yeah. It's a, it's an accelerated MBA. I like to call it. It really is. It really is. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. We're going to have to have you on again. Thanks so much. See you later. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.